Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Runnebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health. I am your host, Todd Runnebaum, and in this episode, I will be talking to Taylor Belfour. She is the editor-in-chief of the University of Regina's uh, student newspaper, The Carillon. We met, well, we didn't really meet, but over the phone, she interviewed me about four years ago, talking about uh, mental health and some kind of advocating I was doing at that time. Taylor herself is now advocating for uh, mental health, not just mental health, but addictions and the opioid crisis. Uh, About two years ago, her sister, Rachel, passed away of a drug overdose. She's here to tell her story and her thoughts on um, mental health in Saskatchewan and her thoughts about the opioid crisis in Regina and the province. Now, we do record these, we, I mean me, I record these episodes in some cases, weeks before they're actually released. Uh, This is around the end of March right now that I'm saying this and recording this. Um, This mental health crisis known as addiction uh, is kind of close to my heart. I work in an addiction treatment center, and just this past week, uh, it was voted by a council of the town that we are trying to move to to not have us there. I really breaks my heart that the stigma is still alive and strong in Saskatchewan. People are dying constantly. We're record-breaking numbers in Regina and in the province. People are asking for help. They're looking for help. They're not trying to take over your community and uh, drop needles everywhere and rob your houses. They want to go to a place where they can get help for their sickness. So, uh, I'm extremely disappointed that, well, I'm basically laid off still, which is whatever it is, but I'm more disappointed that the stigma is still alive and strong in many areas of Saskatchewan, even with everyone knowing that people are dying constantly in this province from overdoses. Just a couple days ago, we actually lost a, another former client, uh, and you know, the thing is, it's not just drug overdoses, it's, there's suicides, there's murders, there's all types of ways that using addicts are are dying. These are our children, these are our loved ones, these are people that that we know in the community. They aren't bad people, they're sick people, they need help. So anyway, uh, I've done a few episodes and talked a lot about addictions already, even even though this is only about our fourth or fifth episode, but this episode, once again, we talk about addiction. I swear not every episode is going to be about addiction, but this one is just near and dear to my heart and uh, a hot button issue right now because of um, my treatment center not being allowed to open. Anyway, Taylor's a lovely girl. Her story is interesting and educational and she's doing great work. And without further ado, Taylor Belfer. Rachel, your sister, 
tell me a little bit what she was like and kind of what the circumstances were leading up to her death. Yeah. Um, so Rachel, she, I loved, I'm trying to find the best way to describe her. I always find that the best way that I can describe her is to just talk about things that we did together. I feel like it's such a good tell of her character. We just loved spending time together. And I think the best kind of show of who she was as a person was there was this one time we were in Saskatoon, obviously well pre-COVID times, <laughs> and we were visiting our grandparents and we were walking to go pick up coffee one morning and we had passed uh, a homeless man with a dog on the street and he had like a cup out in front of him. And the second that we got inside the store, she turned to me and she said, I'm not getting anything for myself. I'm just going to get something for him. And I was hmm. like, sure, you you do that. Like, you go first. You go for it. Like, if you want me to get you anything, let me know. You can go and do that, right? Uh, so she bought him one large black coffee and I think like a granola bar or something like that. Uh, and then when I say like the second that she got those things in her hand, she booked it out the door and was like rushing to him because she wanted to make sure that he didn't leave. Uh, and he was so, so grateful. I, of course, wasn't there, but she was telling me about it later. And he was so grateful because he thought it was so sweet for someone to do that rather than ignore them, which is unfortunately super common or just, mm -hmm. you know, give mindlessly give change as though like, oh, whatever, here, here, random person on the street. Here's a dime. Yeah. You know, she treated him like he was a person. And when we were walking back, you know, heading back to our grandparents' place, like we waved at him, we said bye, that we hope he had a good day. Like he was super sweet. And I always use that story in showing that she was this person who, right when you meet her, she had like, she had a very stern resting face, <laughs> uh, resting bee face. Yep. <laughs> um, and so it was right. She seemed so intimidating and she loved leather jackets and black coffee and like big boots. And she like always had her hair up and she was always wearing her glasses and right. She had like all these tattoos planned that she wanted to get right. Like she was that person. And so it's like the second that you talk to her, it's like a flip switched. And all of a sudden, like this cold, stern demeanor fell and she became like this bubbly, bright, super excited, just happy to get to talk to someone person. <laughs> and I find that 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 is what I remember her the most for, because it's it's so funny to think about if you passed her on the street. <clears throat> right. You'd think, oh, you, like, right. You'd be like, oh, OK, like. She's a little scary, whatever, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny to think about how all you would need to do is like smile or wave at her on the street and she'd be like, oh, hi, good morning. Like complete flip. <laughs> <laughs> so you remember her best for her resting bitch face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is how, I know that is how she would want to be known. <laughs> which is a good <laughs> Did she know too. that she had that? Oh yes, and she owned it. You know, it, especially in high school, because um, right as soon as she get, got to university, that was like her people, that was her scene. But when she was in high school, she was very much like, screw all these people, I just want to get in and get out. So she's <laughs> like, the best way for me to do that is to just, you know, like, shield up, let's go. And it was just no one will bug me, right? I get to talk to the people that I want to talk to and no one else will bother me, which is so funny. <laughs> but then, right, the second that she was put in like a group project in a class or if she was hanging out with her friends or leading a presentation whatever then all of a sudden it's like she's bubbly she's there she's ready to go it's like when she was in her element she was super excited and super right. happy it's just you have to get her there <laughs> <laughs> 
So what, like leading up to her death, what was kind of the circumstances there? So um, I guess a little bit of background is that Rachel struggled with depression and anxiety for, I would argue, most of her life. Um, It started, of course, becoming more prominent when it was like early teens, right, when it normally starts to become prominent. Uh, And so she'd gone to the doctor in the past and she'd been placed on... I believe it was one type of antidepressant that really worked for her. I don't think she bounced from uh, type to type, but she did bounce from taking it to not taking it, right? Like she would be put on them, she'd get leaned off them, she'd go back on them again. Mm-hmm. But she was also not ashamed of that, which I found very nice. Um, she like didn't shy away from talking about it. She wasn't embarrassed about it, which was nice. Uh, and I think it's because, right, in those early years, I really do think that they helped her, um, mm-hmm. according to what she told me they really did. Uh, so in kind of around the last year of her life, so like 2018 going into early 2019, uh, she had just graduated high school, you know, she was going to university, she had just moved into her dorm, We like me and my mom had gone to help her move in, and she was really excited to kind of be in her element. But especially in the last few months of her life, she was extremely stressed about school and about social circumstances that were going on on campus for her. Hmm. So um, it's so complicated, especially in COVID times. It's really weird to look back at this because it all started when 2018, that December final time, Rachel got the flu and this email had gone around the dorms and said like the flu is going around all the dormitories. So many people have called into their exams. If you have it, please just stay home. We don't want more people getting sick. And so they said, because so many people have it, we're just going to bulk reschedule a lot of these exams in January. If you're feeling well, still go. If you're sick, don't worry, we'll reschedule it. So her Mm -hmm. final was rescheduled for January. So after Christmas break, and she was like, well, this is great because as soon as she knocked the flu which like it took her a few days and then she was fine uh but she was still coming home for christmas uh about i think a week or so later and so she said i'll bring my books with me i'll study well like i have time to kill right i have all this extra time now to study i got it uh so christmas break passes this final passes and it's partway through january that she gets her marks back and learns that she failed not only the exam but the class it was one of those courses Mm. if you fail the final exam you fail the class so she's stressed because in the in the semester that she's taking she's taking part two of that course but she failed part one so she's like i'm in the middle of part two and i technically can't be here because i didn't finish part one and so she had contacted like academic advising and she was asking for help but because they were so busy they told her that she needed to wait like two weeks in order to get in And she's like, I don't have that option. Like, I need to figure out if I need to drop this class now and get a full refund. I don't, like, I'm not eligible for this class. I can't just stay and keep taking it. I can't just, like, if I pass this class, it's almost null because I didn't take part one, right? Right, She has a whole bunch of questions to ask. And two weeks, especially in the first month of a semester, is huge for students because those are a lot of the drop terms. That's a lot of the time when you can get partial or full refunds. For a lot of students, that means a lot. Um, 
And so she was super stressed about that. And she was talking with us about that and how she really didn't know what to do. Uh, and she was also talking about how she was interested in going to counseling services on campus. But shock, yet again, she was put on a wait list because mm -hmm. of how many other students wanted to go. Um, and so I would have conversations with her primarily over text during this time um, where I would kind of just say, you know, you don't need to worry about falling behind. There's no set schedule for university, right? Uh, I had told her that I was looking to take five years for my degree and uh, right. There's no set amount. You don't need to have a four year degree. You don't right. need to have anything, right? You can go at your own pace. I'm sorry. She was in Edmonton. Yes. And you were in Regina. Okay. Yes. That's right. So, oh no, it's all good. <laughs> so <laughs> right when we were texting back and forth and when we were talking, um, right. She was talking about how like, oh, I get that, but I still feel like I'm falling behind. I still feel like I'm falling behind. And of course it clues back into she has depression and she has anxiety. Um, she's all alone in a city where she has no family. She has friends, but it's completely different. It's the first time that she's all alone. Right. Um, she is on a wait list for both academic counseling and regular counseling. Uh, and the other social factor that was going on in her life is in December, a huge factor of her life was the fact that someone was like following her and making her uncomfortable on campus. And she had to like call campus security and report him. And he was removed from her dorm room, like removed hmm. and was told like, there's a whole bunch of evidence that was like put against him because he was doing a lot of things that were not okay. Um, and she finally had like enough to go to campus security. She went to campus security. And again, she was offered no further support. Like he was removed from her dormitory. The, she was told he can't go back in the dormitory if he is immediately call campus security and he'll be removed. Damn, like that alone is enough stress. Yeah. And then they said like, okay, good luck back to classes. Like no counseling services, no further support. Right. It felt and she said, you know, it's fine as long as he's removed from the building, that's fine. But it's also like, they should have offered. There were other things going on in your life that you might have wanted to access counseling services for. And just because she tells me like, it's fine, it's fine that they didn't offer me counseling services. That doesn't mean that it is. That's just Rachel kind of being like, Taylor, it's okay, don't get mad. <laughs> mm. So were you worried for her at this point or? Oh yeah, I wasn't I wasn't so much worried about like her safety if that makes sense cuz I knew like she was in a locked dormitory, you needed to use several keys to get into her floor, let alone her room. So in that sense I wasn't worried, but I was worried about how she was doing mentally just because I knew like I'd lived with her for like 18 years. Yeah. I saw the way that she would beat herself up when stuff went wrong and not having any of us to be able to offer a distraction as well. Like we were we were practically best friends. Like we always hung out downstairs and played video games together. So if she was going through a rough time, we'd do that. We'd watch videos together. We'd go get fast food. We'd go get coffee, right? Like we could go mm -hmm. do something. Uh, and with that isolating feeling on campus, she didn't really have those options anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, not to say she didn't have other options, but it's a completely new ballpark. Like it's it's a completely new city, a completely new set of friends. And you're just trying to maneuver while all of this crazy chaos is happening to you and you're offered no form of support. Do you have some resentment towards the school? Uh, yes. Um, also in how a lot of things were handled after her death, I also have a lot of resentment. Oh. Um, and I guess it's because 
when we moved her in all over the main floor of her dorm room again this was pre-covid so there was chaos there were people everywhere but everywhere, on every screen, on every billboard, they were talking about mental health services that were able, that are available 24-7, and all you need to do is call in order to access help. And in hindsight, I look back at that and when you had a student that was, like, looking you in the face, talking about how, like, talking about an arguably traumatic or, or at least scary experience Mm-hmm. And you were like, anyway, it's been dealt with. See you at class tomorrow. Like, that's not how it works. You can't do that. <laughs> we'll offer it to you, but you have to wait six months on a wait list. Yeah, exactly. And it's, <laughs> right? Like, what what does that accomplish? And yeah. so um, kind of how her death occurred was we believe, because we don't know for sure, we believe that she passed away on February 2nd. Um, I can't remember if that's the Friday or the Saturday in 2019, but it was the weekend. We believe it was either really late on the Friday or really early on the Saturday um, because that was late on Friday night was the last time I had talked to her. Hmm. It was the last text conversation we had. And I believe that was the last time that any of us had really spoken to her. So come Tuesday, like about four days have passed. We still haven't heard from her. We've just been kind of doing our average things. We've been going to school, going to work, but we still haven't heard from her come Tuesday. And at this point we're concerned because she didn't respond to us over the weekend, whatever. She's an 18 year old university student. Like Mm -hmm. it's the weekend. Like she's probably having fun (laughs) um, with all of her friends. And so, but come Tuesday and we hadn't heard anything, we got worried. We called the university to ask for a wellness check and they were being really weird about it, which we thought was strange. Um, And it wasn't until a few hours later that the police arrived at the house to tell us that she'd been found dead in her dorm room. Um, And the only thing that they were able to tell us at the time was that it was evident of a drug overdose but that was it like when when we were talking to them they weren't able to offer anything further than that and i mean in hindsight because now of course we've gotten her toxicology and her autopsy report she visibly looked like someone who had suffered an overdose um i know my parents were super weirded out at the time like how do you know that it was a drug overdose like you're just here to tell us what happened but unfortunately right she had visible signs of a drug overdose and of course unfortunately the opioid crisis is so prevalent now that especially if you're a police officer you kind of know right once you enter a scene if it's Mm -hmm. an opioid related death because they're so so unfortunately common you kind Mm -hmm. of just know the signs as much as it sucks but um that right so in after the police had left we were kind of calling um was it the coroner's office i can't remember we were calling people to try and figure out what had happened and once we had called the, like the office the medical office or whatever they had <laughs> told us that um they told us that she had taken a they told us i can't remember if they told us then that she had taken methamphetamine that was laced with heroin that was that was what they were able to find huh. um but it's i can't remember if they told us it then like the day that we found out that she passed away or if we needed to wait until the toxicology report because i have this weird memory of us finding out that day that it was methamphetamine and heroin but we didn't know that fentanyl was involved until we got like the actual report that had outlined everything right 
But I'm not sure if that's like a false memory, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because it's kind of like now I look back at that and it's like, could they have known that early on what it was? Like, did I imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I can um, only when, imagine it's a, a blur. But when the report came back, eventually it did say that she had passed away from a combination of methamphetamine uh, that was laced with heroin and fentanyl. And fentanyl was found to be the cause of death and her death was ruled to be accidental. Um, so unfortunately that meant that she had taken these drugs while she was in her room alone. She had passed away, overdosed um, either late on the Friday or early on the Saturday, and then wasn't found for about four days until Tuesday, February 5th. Hmm. And so that, that I think eats at me the most, the knowing that she wasn't found for several days really sucks because it's, it's a kind of a hopeless feeling, right? It's like, could I have done something differently to get her found earlier? It's really frustrating. And, you know, it makes you angry to know how many people passed by her door while she was there and no one did anything, right? She missed her classes. She missed a meeting with all of her floor mates. And it's just kind of sad to know that how many people passed by her door, how many people walked by and didn't like even think that she could be in there right yeah. and i get it it's just sad to think about in hindsight right because no one thinks about it in the moment but in hindsight well, it really sucks <laughs> it, it kind of really shows just how perhaps lonely she was there in a new city new school i mean she like you said she had friends but obviously they weren't close enough that they were missing her every day yeah well yeah. and and that's the thing that's i think that's the thing that hurts the most is it feels like her not being found for so long was unfortunately so telling of how she felt in those last few years of her life. She really did feel, you know, isolated and alone and like she wasn't noticed or seen. So knowing that that happened to her even in death is very frustrating and upsetting mm -hmm. to me. It's obviously heartbreaking, but now, now it's me. So I've like channeled that sadness into like, we got to get this fixed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good, I think. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it takes a, a lot of tragedies for people to, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, start advocating for something. But uh, do you know if she had been suffering with addiction for a while or, or was this kind of news to you? So I, I feel bad, but... Prior to her death, I had accidentally stumbled across her Reddit account. We followed a few of the same subreddits on the website Reddit. Um, it's basically just a big forum website. We followed some of the same forums because we like the same video games, right? Hmm. Uh, and I saw a thread that she had mentioned posting and I went, oh, that must be like Rachel's account. Um, and when I went to go look at her account, I saw that she was posting in threads that had to do with right depression, struggling with sleep and drug addiction. And I remember immediately I closed out and I was like, oh my God, like what, what did I do? I essentially felt like I had like read on in on her diary, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and actually a few weeks later when we were playing video games in the basement, she'd said like, hey, if you want to do stuff on Reddit together, you should let me know. I'll make a new account so the two of us can interact. And she said, because my other account is like super private and personal. And I was like, I am the worst <laughs> sister ever. Like, I can't believe that I found that. And so I guess what I tried to do during the time is like bury it. You didn't see it. You didn't see that. You're not going to mention it. You're not going to talk about it. And essentially what I told myself was she like, 
she doesn't want to talk about it. Like also because I kind of said she, I didn't know what it was, right? She did. I didn't look far enough for it to specify what she was taking. But I kind of said, you know, Taylor, all you can do right now is offer her an environment that is safe. All you can do is like treat her like a person, make her feel loved. Like, you know, uh, if she wants to talk to you about anything, give the impression that she's not judged because she isn't right. Mm -hmm. You know, just treat her like a person. And uh, I did that. And actually one of the last conversations we had in person when she was here for Christmas was we did what we always did, which was uh, we went for late night fast food so we could talk and hang out in the car at like midnight or 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were sitting in the driveway in the car because we just arrived and we just parked. And the conversation that we'd had like just pulling up to the house, I can't remember how we got on it, but she had talked about how uh, she said, I don't think the drug users should be seen as bad people. I don't see them as like bad people who make a choice. I see them as people struggling, you know, with an illness. And I was like, yeah, no, I agree. I think the exact same way. And, you know, we kind of talked and she elaborated on her point. And I was like, yeah, no, I agree. That's exactly how I see it. Um, and to me, then and now, I kind of look back at that as I wonder if that was her like testing the waters right to see mm -hmm. what the reaction would be and i don't know if she was ever going to come forward and tell me right she very well might not have she was a private person but the, the thing that i at least appreciate is knowing that in that conversation i told her like i agree people who are struggling like that are not bad people they're just going through a hard time so knowing that she knew that i believed that is kind of comforting if that makes sense yeah for sure um but it i guess in hindsight now it sucks because it's like, man, could I have done something? Like, should I have intervened? Should I have done something? And honestly, I look back and I say, no, because if I had done that, I would have severed all of our trust, right? Like mm -hmm. if I came forward and said, I found your Reddit account and I see that you're doing drugs. Tell me what's going on. Like, no, all trust, all nothing. That's all gone. The only thing that I could do for her is give her an environment where she was loved. And she knew she was loved with me. She knew that, right, we could play games together and we could hang out together. Of course, the regret I have is, you know, I wish I could have done that more. I feel like I did not spend enough time with her or I didn't, you know, cherish that time with her enough. Yeah. I think That's about normal. that a lot. Oh, yeah. But I try to tell myself, right, like she knew that I accepted her. She knew I loved her. She knew we loved spending time together. And as much as that sucks, that's all that I could have done because the reality that I, that I've like kind of come to know over time is she died because someone took advantage of her when she was at a low point right someone took advantage of her in the sense that she took drugs that were laced with something that was going to kill her so to that I think you know Taylor this isn't your fault this isn't her fault this isn't anyone's fault per se it's just, this is a major flaw in our system. She's someone who's fallen through all of the cracks and who died as a result of it. And that needs to be fixed and changed. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that, you know, kind of trying to tell myself, no one's to blame. There's nothing that could have been done differently. You know, she, through no fault of anyone's, she just didn't get the help that she needed. It's, it's the fault of a bunch of things if that makes sense there's no one Absolutely. person to blame it's just the system it's yeah. the system it's the nature of the system and um realizing that and kind of taking that burden of blame off of myself and going we can turn this into 
action. We can do something with this. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that because it kind of feels like we're taking not even guilt because I don't I don't feel guilt anymore, but I'm taking like that sadness about she deserved so much better and I'm giving that to her. But post life. <laughs> right. Yeah. I uh, I work in a addiction treatment center. We just had a fire just before Christmas. So we're trying to move and we found this great location, beautiful building, beautiful location. And um, everyone, everyone in the province knows about the opiate crisis right now. They know all about all the overdoses, but still the community sent out a petition to not have us there and their council voted not to have us there. How do you feel about the stigma still being alive and strong in this province? Honestly, at, at this point, the biggest thing that I feel is just talk to us. Just have a conversation with us. Because every, I've, I've said this before and I'll say this again, if people say, no, I don't like drug addicts, no, I don't think that addiction, like, I don't think that drugs should become legalized. I don't like safe consumption sites, whatever. If you feel that way, I want to talk to you. I don't want to get mad. I just want to have that conversation. I want to know why. Why do you hate drug addicts? Why do you think that drugs shouldn't be legalized? Why do you not like safe consumption sites? Because unfortunately, more often than not, it's either incorrect stigma or stereotyping or misinformation um because right it's when i talk to a lot of people about let's say you know uh, drug addiction facilities essentially the view that a lot of people have if they're not educated on it is you know oh it's this like fast system that's just gonna force them to stop and then they're gonna go right back into the streets and do it again mm -hmm. but no, that's not what it is. If you actually look into it, it's it's more than that. It's making sure that they're getting proper mental health help. It's making sure that the root cause of their addiction is being discussed and addressed. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that they have proper supports once they leave so that if there's a factor such as homelessness or abuse, what have you, that's leading to their addiction, it's making sure that that's addressed so that they no longer be a factor for them once they leave, right? It's it's not like there's just misinformation surrounding it. And I think that that's the thing that's frustrating is a lot of people who are against a lot of what's going on regarding the opioid crisis and the progress that we're, we're trying to make. I guess it's frustrating because it's like, just ask us why we're doing it. We've, we've been trying to talk about why we're doing it. Um, and I think if, if people learned why, it would really change a lot of minds, especially when it comes to things like safe consumption sites or legalizing all drugs. I think that there's a lot of misinformation that floats around those two topics, especially yeah. right in regard to the opioid crisis. And I think that if that information could get cleared up, like I think a lot of people, maybe they wouldn't necessarily go, okay, yeah, I'm all gung-ho for it, but at least they would understand why we want it, right? At mm -hmm. least that conversation can be had. And I think that's the thing that sucks because a lot of people just aren't interested in the conversation because they go, my mind is made up. I do not like drug users. That's yeah. it. <laughs> well, it doesn't help that I notice on Facebook, there's memes going around saying like, drug addicts get free Narcan, but I have diabetes and my insulin isn't free. Like, well, no, don't compare those two things. Like, yeah. why isn't your insulin free? That should yeah, be the question. Exactly. exactly. That's the way that I feel. Cause it's like, yeah, you're right. That, that should be free too. But don't hate a drug addict. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. It's like we it doesn't need to be. And it's unfortunate because I also think it's a society thing. It Our problems don't need to be weaponized. I think it's the nature of like the system that we have right now, which is like we need to tackle one problem at a time. So everyone's fighting for like their problem to be tackled first. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be like that. Like all these problems should be tackled equally because they're all bad. Like you're right. You're like that should be free. You should not need to pay a ridiculous amount of money for that. The same way that uh, if someone is struggling with uh, a drug addiction, they can go and get like a Narcan for free, right? It's kind of like that it all should be allowed. And it just sucks that it's turned into this weaponized, well, you get to do that. Why can't I do this? It's like, well, you should be able to do that too. Like we're trying to work on everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) I think also, right, um, so places like Prairie Harm Reduction, right, because in yes. recent weeks they've met their fundraiser goal, which is absolutely amazing. Um, sort of. But, yeah, right. The, um, the provincial government still, uh, you know, anyway, right? It's, you go ahead. It's like, ama- exactly, but it's like, it's amazing that they met their goal, but it's frustrating because yet again, the provincial government isn't funding it. And it's like, okay, well, and it's because if you talk to people, if you ask, like, why don't you want the site funded? They don't understand what the site is for. Like, they think that it's all oh, free drugs. Like, no, you're not walking in, getting a bag of meth and going, bye, like, see you guys later. Like, that's not how yeah. it works. That's never how it works. It's, and again, I think, Prairie Harm Reduction is doing super great with their social media work, as in they post a whole bunch of like videos and pictures as to what their site does and how everything works, which I think is really great for kind of breaking down that stigma. But right, safe consumption sites are just a place where drug users are able to go and use drugs safely. They don't need to worry about taking drugs that are laced with something illicit like fentanyl, but also they are being supervised by a health professional so they can make sure they're taking a safe amount. They're making sure they're doing it safely. The needles that they're using are going to be clean and sanitized because, again, Saskatchewan's HIV rates are also extremely high and extremely Mm -hmm. rough because in large part because of shared needles so safe consumption sites essentially remove the unsanitization factor in that spreading because it's a nurse that's monitoring everything and then once addicts are done using a part of a safe consumption site is ensuring that they get resources so that they do not need to continue on their addiction it's not like coming in and getting free drugs and leaving it's you come in you get a safe treatment so you don't need to worry about dying and then they go okay so now we're going to work with you so that you don't need to do this anymore right it's you know why why are you addicted is it because you need a place like is it because you're homeless? Is it because you're struggling with depression? Are you being abused? Are you uh, struggling with like something at work, right? What's going on? What's the root cause of your addiction? And not only are we going to help you safely wane off your addiction, we're going to address, address why you started it in the first place, which is how you fix problems. <laughs> it's not <laughs> band-aiding right. it. It's addressing, okay, so why did this happen in the first place? Uh, And it's unfortunate because with a lot of problems we see in society, it's always root causes. And unfortunately, a lot of those root causes are the same for a lot of problems. That's right. Well, the thing people think of when they think of, say, for uh, consumption sites are like these like Hastings Street junkie, they Mm -hmm. just, you know, maybe they're better off overdosing. Like I've literally heard that before. Mm Mm-hmm. And the thing with your sister, Rachel, is she's this young, attractive girl that's going to school. She's a student. She's 
came from a good home, I'm assuming, <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> uh, it's not like she was um, was growing up in an abusive household, dirt poor or anything like that. And th- these are the kind of people that, I don't know, it, the stigma of what a junkie is and yeah. who's actually using. And even those people on Hastings Street, a lot of them came from great families. And it doesn't even matter what kind of family they came from. These are human mm-hmm. beings. These are people. I, know, I try I to... The, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I think that the big one was uh, the summer of 2019 after Rachel passed away. It was announced that Mac Miller, like the famous rapper, had passed away from fentanyl as well. And I think that was, again, a huge one. Like, here is someone who is not meeting this drug stigma stereotype. And yet they have succumbed to the same thing that's killing all of these other people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's because I think eventually, and I think the stigma is slowly starting to being broken down or at least, I don't say changed because you don't want any stigma. That's not the right word. <laughs> but um, I think it's slowly starting to be broken down because I think people are starting to realize that drug users aren't like this mythical like movie imagination of like a homeless person on the street who's like shooting up outside of a mcdonald's like no that's not it they're people like you and me because they are people like every single drug user is a person they're people who come from families they're people who have stories they're people who have highs and lows and struggles and successes like these are people and i think that right being able to talk about Rachel and her life and how she passed away people like she does not fit the stereotype that people believe of drug users so when you look at again someone like her like she was 18 straight a student you know like conventionally beautiful beautiful long blonde hair she was super smart right she was confident in who she was and yet she too succumbed to this and why and if you look at the root causes again it's she fell through cracks in the system she had unaddressed depression and anxiety you know she wasn't offered proper mental health counseling services she wasn't offered you know i would argue patience or support from the university in the sense of understanding of her situation Mm -hmm. which again is a result of there being not enough staff or counselors per students on university campuses, right? Which all just comes back to mental health isn't being taken seriously. It's all just this big web (laughs) and it sucks. Yeah, Yeah, there's no one answer. But the the thing about Rachel is if she hadn't passed away or of an overdose right then, I mean, 10 years down the road, she might've been the junkie on Hastings Street, right? Like the people that are quote unquote junkies on Hastings Street, they're people like they they came from these families it's just exactly and that's the thing that sucks too because it's kind of like what i also try to say is so even though rachel was not a quote-unquote conventional drug user doesn't mean that quote-unquote conventional drug users also do not deserve sympathy and help like come on guys it's just we use her as an example of saying the stereotype is wrong because no like a majority of drug users are not the stereotype the stereotype was created i argue from the war on drugs in the United States as a means of like, screw drug users, don't do drugs, drugs are evil. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast about how the war on drugs <laughs> contributed to this mess, but. <laughs> yeah. The three you know, strikes, you're out. Oh my God, right? It's just, yeah. it's, you know, it's one of those things where 
I, I have always believed that if you slowly start to tackle one problem, other problems will also slowly start to get better. And then it's just kind of a spiral effect as in every time you start addressing a problem more seriously and addressing the root causes, other things will slowly start to get better too. Uh, in other countries that have been really focusing on safe consumption sites, they've had like HIV rates drop, crime rates drop. You know, they have like people, like the likelihood of people reoffending is almost non-existent. It's like 25% of drug users through their system or something like that were at risk of reoffending after going through the safe consumption site system. Yeah. They treat it like a like a physical ailment. Well, because I mean, exactly. it is. It's, your brain is part of you. It's a physical organ, and yeah, exactly. there's something not quite working in there. So, yeah, it is a physical ailment. I, I always compare a lot of mental health things to physical ailments, and like mm-hmm. some people say, "Oh, well, he's been in treatment five times. Uh, it's not working." So, well, some people get chemotherapy for years. You know, it's. Yeah. So the first one doesn't take, that doesn't mean you give up on this person that is sick. Yeah. Right. It's like if you break an arm and you go to the doctor, they're going to like, okay, they're going to look at you and they're going to go, okay, so you say that your arm is hurting. We're going to go, we're going to look, we're going to go through the evidence and we're going to see if it's actually broken. Like we're going to take you seriously when you say that your arm is broken. We're going to see if it is. And if it is broken, we're going to put you through a system to not only heal it, but then maybe you're going to be going through like physiotherapy to make sure that it's working again afterwards. Right. So the comparison is, could you imagine? Imagine going into a doctor and being like, my arm is broken and it really hurts. And they're like, you know what? Just go on a walk, sit on it for a few days. Um, call me if it's still a problem in a few weeks. Like that's not how it works. Yeah. That's not how it works. And your family tells you, don't tell anybody because it's shameful. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what your family did, but. Oh yeah. But it's like, there's nothing wrong with going, going to someone and saying something doesn't feel right. And I guess another thing that also sucks is, and this is what I tell people a lot now, you know, if you go to a doctor, if you go to a counselor, if you go to whoever, and you talk about how you feel, and you feel as though that person isn't taking you seriously, it is okay to go and find another one, right? Mm -hmm. You know, especially when it comes to doctors or counselors, like those are the two big ones for me. When it came to counselors, I bounced through like three counselors before I found one that I feel like really got me and understood me. That's also like a huge position of privilege for me, right? To be able to switch between counselors. Uh, I'm really thankful for that. But the thing that sucks is, you know, if you go to a doctor and you're asking for help of any kind and they don't believe you, they aren't taking you seriously, you are more than allowed to go to a different doctor to get a different opinion. Because if you feel as though you're struggling, because again, that's a huge problem. People not being taken seriously when they're trying to ask for help. You're more than allowed to like fight for that. Go to different doctors, you know? And it sucks because it's being able to tell people like, fight for yourself, you can do it. It sucks because if they don't have the backing to do that, that's the problem. That's where people fall through the cracks in the system, so. It's hard to tell someone with depression and anxiety to go fight yeah. for yourself. They're, yeah, they're exactly. in the middle of being sick. Exactly. So it's like if if you tell someone, like, go to your doctor, talk to them about your depression, and your doctor goes like, oh, I don't believe you. Someone who is struggling might not have the resources to go, okay, I'll book an appointment with three other doctors, right? It's yeah. Some people can do that, which they're really lucky to be able to do, but we need to help the people who don't have those luxuries. We need to make the system supportive by default, not by like if you work hard enough to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, to be honest with you, that's kind of what happened to me. I it 
I, I, I went to the emergency room in Regina. Uh, it was a long story. I had a real traumatic crisis, and I get, get there, and I wait in the waiting room, and um, I finally saw someone, and they said, you know, keep keep taking your meds, keep uh, yeah. going to your counselor, and yeah, that's about it. I was actually embarrassed that I even went to the hospital because I felt like it was uh, someone like stubbed their toe and go, went to the hospital. The doctor looked at the toe and said, yeah, you'll be fine. Get out of here kind of thing. And yeah. so then I actually, that made my depression, anxiety and everything else worse. So it was a year, almost to the day later, I end up in handcuffs after a suicide attempt getting into the hospital. Because I wouldn't go there anymore because I felt embarrassed. I didn't feel like I was even sick or anything because the, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and it's people just need to be believed. And I guess I guess the thing that always gets me, and again, it's also like our system is overloaded, which is a whole other problem. But um, it's if people, if someone comes to the emergency room because they're having a mental health crisis, they're there for a reason right like if they made the decision to go to the emergency room you need to take that seriously they weren't just like let's do this for fun like if you're especially if you're having a mental health crisis the last thing you want to do is go to the emergency room it's the last thing you want to do but it's you do it because you feel that you need to so if you go and people don't take you seriously there of course it's going to make everything worse it's so it's just frustrating because it's this huge string of like they're overloaded and they're full and they're just trying to take care of everyone and they're trying to prioritize but that means that mental health is always shoved to the side and especially in saskatchewan mental health care that's so it's so complicated and bad (laughs) well we now have a minister of mental health and addictions who Mm -hmm. i i hate to toot my own horn but four years ago i uh, started a petition to uh, create one and so i don't know if I'm responsible for it or not, but uh, anyway. Say that you uh, are, toot that horn. (laughs) (laughs) But it's frustrating to see, I mean, we'll see in this next budget coming up here, Mm -hmm. how supportive they're going to be of places like uh, consumption or safe consumption Mm -hmm. sites. Like, is it, are they actually going to help or is it going to be a political view? Just how Mm -hmm. they're going to help, you know? One One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in the past few months, especially since, you know, Prairie Harm Reduction met their fundraising goal, especially that day that that was announced. Um, I was thinking about how on the election trail last year, every single political leader was like, yes, the opioid crisis is serious and we need to look into it. And I remember, right, the Saskatchewan party being like, yeah, it's bad. We'll look into that. And then everyone else was like, it is a travesty. We need to do something, which I was like, okay, first of all, one of these things is not like the other. Like, which one of these party leaders is like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's a problem that we need to address. But (laughs) anyway, push comes to shove, right? They get in. All these months later, it's like, okay, so you said that the opioid crisis was serious and you need to invest in it. Are you going to give us money? (laughs) so that we can you know stay open and watching the fundraising goal for like just be raised mainly from the public or from like public organizations is great but super frustrating because on one hand i go like that's amazing because it's essentially like the government is turning a blind eye partially not fully but partially and a lot to this crisis and the community is just going, okay, fine, we'll we'll fundraise it, right? Prairie Harm yeah. Reduction was created because of, like, community donations and fundraisers and merch. And so right. it's, 
it's great to see that the community has come together to fund it because we see it as worthwhile. It's just so frustrating to know, like, you said yourselves that this crisis was a problem. Push has come to shove and it's time for you to invest money in it. And you're like, I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I think they are investing a lot of money in mental health and addiction. Oh, yeah. But, you know, according to their political spectrum, they're doing it, I think. So, uh, you know, you talk to them and they're like, hey, we've spent like 30 million on this and this and this. And I, I get that they're setting up things yeah. for the future because there hasn't been much done at all. So they, yeah. you know, there's going to take a year or two to get these bases down. But I mean, a million dollars for a safe consumption site to run 24 hours, seven days a week, as opposed to nine to five. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a drop in the bucket. I mean, a million dollars is absolutely nothing in comparison to the the health care budget. Right. And people say, well, 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 where do you get it from? Yeah. It, the money is there. You just allocate it to that as, as opposed to yeah. other things that don't need the money quite yeah. as much. And that's the thing that's frustrating. It's because it's seeing the crisis as enough of a priority to do that. And that's the problem. It's like, yeah. right, the one of the big questions at the leadership debate was about the opioid crisis. So knowing that, okay, so this was like a very hot button topic. This is very widely talked about. We're asking you to essentially, in the grand scheme of your budget, put a couple pennies into making this site open 24 hours. And it's just frustrating to know that the community jumped to that before the government did, if that makes yeah. sense. It's just super disheartening to see because I guess it's also, because I agree, right? It's super hard to get things done. Um, it, I don't expect anything to be done overnight, of course. It's super complicated process. But I guess it's it's so disheartening to see, right? The very least that I think they could do is go, this is this is worth seeing if the numbers change, if we invest in this site. Like statistics yeah. have shown that it is helping. So at the very least, why don't you invest in it to see what happens? Invest in it, see if it's successful. And then if it is successful, then it was a successful investment, right? Like you yeah. saved lives, you did good. So I guess that's that's frustrating because it's an investment that will save lives. It's just a matter of whether or not they see it as a priority or that's not. Right. As we said, like if, if like $30 million is going over here, can you allocate 1 million of that? one million like just yeah. to keep this site running to keep people alive because it you know you don't need to look that far to see that prairie harm reduction is saving a lot of lives and is doing a lot of great work so i yeah. guess that's the frustrating too thing is everyone in your community or i shouldn't say everyone most people in your community are widely helping fundraise the site and you right now still have not seen the value in it or at least have not put the financial value in it which is yeah. disheartening because your people have the people who voted you in have like yeah. they're keeping this site running they're asking you for support because that's what you're supposed to do and it's just heartening disheartening knowing that they're like i don't know if that's worth it i don't know if it's worth the one million dollars yeah i mean if nothing else it's a, a huge positive to see at least the communities behind it and oh, people yeah. like evan bray the chief of police in Regina, mm -hmm. he's all about uh, safe consumption sites and legalizing drugs and and actually getting down to the oh, yeah. why the you know the main reason is that people are sick. 
So at least there's that, hopefully. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're recording this on March 23rd. The new uh, provincial budget comes out in a few weeks, I think. Yeah, so, I think so. I mean, this episode might not be out for a month, but hopefully... Yeah. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, right? I mean, there was a whole different budget before there was even a, a minister of mental health oh, and addictions yeah. for last year. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that uh, oh, yeah. th- they make this a priority. And I always feel so bad because I feel like such a negative Nancy. Like, we're not doing enough. And it's important <laughs> to say, like, we are doing a lot. A, even just in the past two years, so much has changed I think a large part thanks to COVID. I think the COVID lockdown has really put a spotlight on mental health and the opioid crisis. A lot of great things are being done. I'm just excited to see if more is done. I'm excited to see if more governments start to take it more seriously and start to invest in it more, I guess. Because I think it's a good, more than a good investment. It's a great investment because it's going to save a lot of lives in the long run as well. Yeah. So fingers crossed. (laughs) I know now uh, I see families when they a loved one is has passed away from overdoses, they'll put it right in the obituary mm-hmm. and they'll talk about it. Um, like even two years ago when Rachel passed away, was your family that open about how she passed away? Yeah, like, and that's the thing that we think about a lot because when we had written Rachel's obituary, the only thing, even like to the general public, the only people who knew that she died from a drug overdose were our immediate family. To the public, we just said that she passed away in an accident and that was Mm. it. And I actually remember, I made a point of in that year, the first year since Rachel, that Rachel passed away, if I ever was reading obituaries, whether it was like in the physical paper or online, anytime there was a death that was ruled as accidental or that wasn't specified or said like they died suddenly, especially if it was someone who looked younger, I'll like, I sit with that for a little bit longer because right, you never know, but I can't help but wonder with almost every person now when mm-hmm. the death isn't specified because it's so common and it's so stigmatized that it's it's sad, I guess, to think about. Like just hearing like this life was so suddenly taken and no one, at least people who are reading this, no one knows why. And that's so yeah. tragic. And unfortunately, that's normally the case for the family too. This life has been taken and no one knows why. There's yeah. no reasoning. I, th- I think a lot of the stigma has to come down to like stigma for drug overdose especially has to come down to the families. I mean, if they're still very secretive about how they passed away and they don't put it in the obituaries, I mean, if if you keep Lou Gehrig's disease a secret, then people aren't going to invest money into Lou Gehrig disease research mm-hmm. or, or treatment because they don't even know there's a problem because they, they're keeping it a secret. Right. And I don't know, I'm sure that this has happened to you, but I found that the second that we first spoke publicly that it was fentanyl that uh, she had passed away from, like the second that we were open about that, mm-hmm. like tens of hundreds of people would reach out and would go like, I struggled with addiction. I had a family member that struggled with addiction. I had a friend pass away. I am struggling. I'm sober, right? Like so many people reached out with so many stories And I remember being floored in like the first 24 hours since we kind of like announced how she passed away with the amount of people that I knew that I grew up with that I went to school with that either struggled themselves or knew someone that struggled. And they reached out to me privately to say like, I see you, I hear you, there's no judgment here. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing, but also so sad to see like so many people are struggling with this. And it's so good to know that you know, one person speaking out has given all these people 
connection. That's super great. But mm -hmm. it's so heartbreaking to know that it's still so secret, right? It's like this whole underground world. The second someone says something, all these other people go like, I struggled with that too. Like yeah. me too. I, I agree with you. That happened to me. Or I know someone that that happened to. And it's just, it's devastating. Like it's nice to have a sense of community, but it's bittersweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So normalizing it is, is the best way to rid, get rid of the stigma, I think which I, I understand is difficult. I mean, it's been decades of this stigma. So um, we're, we're normally going a little longer than my other episodes, but I, I don't care. It's my show. I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> are, are you still good for a couple minutes or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know like I was a client um, at Pine Lodge. That's where I, I work. And it was really eye-opening to me. Like I, I had addiction to alcohol and marijuana, but even talking to people that had, you know, quote unquote, a hard drug addiction with crystal meth and uh, coke and all that, all that stuff, they were still. So many of them were were like nurses who who had access to yeah. drugs or EMTs, first responders. Uh, some of them, they just had back surgery and they were prescribed mm -hmm. uh, a painkiller. And then when their prescription ran out, then they were still hooked to it and they had to go out and find it on the street. So again, it's like the stigma of these junkies and they uh, their low lives and get rid of them anyway. Like mm -hmm. the opioid crisis, uh, drug addiction, like it's so, that's like an umbrella term. There's so much there's so many different types. There's so many different ways that you can get addicted, right? Like Rachel's story of passing away from taking drugs like with fentanyl is like a drop in the pond of all the different ways that opioids can affect lives, could kill people, could lead to addiction, right? Like that's one story. There are so many people who have uh, knee surgery. They take, um, they take an opioid in order for painkillers, as you said, and then they get addicted after the fact. Like yeah. there are so many different ways that not even just opioids, but addiction in general uh, can affect lives. And it just sucks because it feels like the stereotype of how people um, how people get addicted is just so prevalent. I, OK, actually, Rachel and I would make fun of this ad because of how insane it was. I can't remember who made it, but there was this ad like we would go see movies and this would be an ad that would play before a movie. And it was like this guy with so a dad with his kid in the car. He like stops at a gas station, and runs inside with his car running. And this dude runs up and steals the car. And this dad, this dude is like, oh, my God, like my daughter's in the car. Oh, my God. And so he's trying to run after this vehicle. So this dude who's stolen the vehicle is literally like driving and like injecting himself <laughs> as he is driving. Like he's wrapping the band around his like one hand on the wheel and like is looking as he is. And I, the entire time I was watching that, I was like, I don't know who wrote this ad, but I don't think they know actually anything about how anything works because no <laughs> one does that like no that is so beyond reality and every time i watch ads like that it's like that is someone who didn't speak to anyone in the community before writing this ad because it's <laughs> it's just perpetuating this ridiculous stereotype that everyone who does drugs is like this action movie hero who's gonna steal stuff and like oh i'm gonna do drugs as i'm racing down the street like no the average drug user is like i I just want to take these drugs to get through my day like that's all like this 
imaginary stereotype is so ridiculous. Like, who? why did we get here? How did we get here? Yeah. Well, another stereotype I can't stand, and I see it all the time, uh, ads for, are you depressed? Are you have anxiety? And it's always these really sad looking people in the shadows and they're just mopey. And it's like, I know so many people that are suicidal or have been suicidal and depressed and you would have no idea by looking at them. Mm -hmm. Like that stereotype of just walking around sad, looking out the window with the rain coming down the glass, you know, it's like, give me a break. Like, Like, yes, I mean... Some people are like that, but, but I mean, like, the stereotype more, is not. Yeah, it's like, Sorry? it's again, it's mental health is so, it's so different for everyone, but it's like, why don't you actually talk to people who are affected by mental health and make an ad that's garnered to them, right? Like how, like an ad as in, why don't you talk to them and get to know their experience? And if you wanted to make a PSA, their experience could be incorporated and it would be accurate and could actually reach people that need to be reached, right? Yeah. Like it'd be more accurate if you had an ad of people who are like going to work or walking down the sidewalk or like smiling and waving at people, but there's like a gray cloud over them the whole time or they're like muted in color in comparison to everyone else, right? Like that's, those are more accurate depictions of what people go through than I'm just going to sit here for 20 hours at a time and stare out the window. Cause like, no, that's, that's, <laughs> Some people are like that, but that is not the majority. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the day before I attempted my suicide attempt, I mean, I was at work making people laugh in the lunchroom and, you know, it's like, and I was morbidly depressed. When Robin Williams away, everyone was like, oh my God, that's horrible. He was always so happy. But everyone's like, yeah, but he struggled with depression and he was very open with that. Like... Yeah. Just because he made people happy and because he was a jolly guy, it doesn't mean he was wasn't struggling, right? Yeah. And also, because I haven't had a chance to say it yet, I am very glad that you are still here because you are wanted here. Ah, uh-huh, thanks. I, I, I'm. I think I'm glad to be here. No, I am. I am. I am. <laughs> These days, it's kind of like who knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Taylor, for taking the time to speak to me. Uh, You are very courageous for telling your story, for telling Rachel's story, and for trying to really eradicate the stigma around drug use and and drug users. I am so sorry for your loss. I also want to thank everyone that listened this week, that's left reviews, left ratings, and left nice comments. Uh, A big thank you to Allison Weed for her comment. A uh, big thank you to Lainey Lee Antoine for her comment and for a lovely lady, Megan Shiplack, for leaving uh, her comment and her review. Next week or next episode, either one, both, I guess, we are going to be talking to, or I will be talking to, I guess. You won't, you won't be saying much to her, but I will be talking to Dr. Aisha Kurji. She is a pediatrician in Saskatoon and she specializes in eating disorders. Uh, So we're going to ask her a lot of questions. (laughs) I'm going to ask her a lot of questions about eating disorders because I don't know a whole lot about it. It's going to be another great episode. She's a lovely lady and very smart, and she's going to educate me. So I'm looking forward to that. 
thank you for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review however you are listening to this podcast. It only takes a moment, and it really helps the show out with getting noticed. This episode has been sponsored by Regina Plumbing and Heating. Call 306-585-2000 for all your plumbing, heating, and cooling needs. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306-764-1011. In Regina, it's 306-525-5333. And in Saskatoon, it's 306-933-6200. Don't forget to check out my children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Sometimes Daddy Cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye!